I'm Laura Max Rose, mother of two, and you're listening to Look Ma No Hands, my candid dispatches from the front lines of motherhood. I ask the real, tough, honest questions on motherhood-related topics that we're all wanting to know more about, in hopes it will make everyone's journey fulfilling, easier, and more joyful. If you're not a mom, welcome. I want you to know how happy I am that you're listening and that these topics can be applied to any season of life. I'm grateful you're along for the ride. Welcome back to Look Ma, No Hands. I am here with the author of The Simple Parenting Guide to Technology and Youth and Parenting Speaker, Joshua Wayne. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Hey, thanks. Happy to be here with you, Laura. Um, I'm thrilled to talk to you today because one of the most common questions I get and topic requests I get is um, to chat with someone about screen time, technology, all of these uncharted territories that we're walking through as parents. Um, I was born in the late 80s. I'm 31 years old now. Um, I took a desktop computer class for the first time when I was six years old. Seemed like it was enough for me. Uh, And now we're living in this world where, you know, two-year-olds have iPads and the whole um, world as we knew it has completely changed and continues to do so very quickly. Um, So I am a parent to two girls myself, and I hear from parents all the time about this conundrum that they find themselves in. Uh, We want our children to be technologically literate, but we also want to keep them playing outdoors and give them the social skills that we had um, growing up. And since the worlds that we grew up in are so much different, there's a lot of confusion about what that really looks like. So you really break it down um, very succinctly in your Simple Parenting Guide to Technology. It's a 40-page book, which I purchased on Kindle. Um, I read it in probably in less than an hour taking notes. And um, so much of what you said really stuck with me. Um, and you discussed things that I actually hadn't considered because my daughters are younger. So what to do when your kids inevitably discover pornography on a smartphone? Um, how to really get your kids to turn in their technology, essentially, uh, before they go to bed at night um, and how to set those boundaries. So um, without any further ado, I'll go ahead and um, ask you what prompted you, you're a daughter, you're um, a father of a six-year-old boy yourself, what prompted you to write the Simple Parenting Guide to Technology? Well, the goal here, honestly, is to build a series. So this is the first in the series of simple parenting guides. And I'm glad and I appreciate you saying, you know, in the feedback about read in an hour, that, that was the whole idea is I was looking at my bookshelf like a year, year and a half ago. And I saw there was half a dozen parenting books on there that I had bought and with the best of intentions to read. And I had never even opened them since Amazon had dropped them on my doorstep. And I was thinking about why that was. And it really came down to just time with everything else going on and having a busy career and a family, just the idea of picking up these two, the, the average, I actually just did a, a page count. The average page count of all the books was 232 pages. And I realized that the reason I'm not reading them is because I have to sift through a whole bunch of research and stories and anecdotes to, to get to the, I don't know, 20% or whatever it is of, of really actionable advice. And they're all good books. And I've, I've looked through them since, but it just gave me this idea to write a book series of simple parenting guides around on just the, each one solving a specific parenting challenge. And, and, and the tagline that I have on the back of the book is for every parent who, who finds themselves saying, like, I know I do, please just tell me what to do. 
Yes, that's a lot, a lot of, of parents. <laughs> yeah, it's just like we're so busy, and and again, like I don't mean to knock on on other books that are out there. I mean, there's tons of great parenting books, you know. I mean, I've read tons of them over the years, but I just felt like there was this need for just this like kind of cut to the chase, something you can read in an hour and at least know what you need to do next. Well, when then, I tell when I tell my friends about this book, I tell them like. It's just the out, it's just the guidelines and the outline, and it just tells you what to do. I didn't even know that that was the tagline, but that's exactly how I've described it. Like every question I've ever had about how to handle <clears throat> technology with my kids was just answered so directly. I mean, there was even a chart about the hours per day one can spend in front of a screen, depending on how old yeah. they are. And yeah. um, I really appreciate how straightforward it was, especially as someone who doesn't have that much time, but wants the information. Um, so yeah, your book does give approximate amounts of time for how long each child should have with a screen per day, depending on their age. Um, and you state in the chart that children aged 16 to 18 years old should be able to learn how to self-moderate um, during holidays in the summer. So I read that and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I can't imagine having a kid that old, but I remember being that age and self-moderation was definitely um, a tricky area. So what does that really look like? And how do we support healthy moderation um, with screens in our children as they grow up? Well, when they're younger, the key is we just have, we have to have the reins over how technology is used at home. I mean, I think that to me is, is, is the main point that we as parents are the ones that are, that are basically dictating the terms. You know, one of the ways I say it in the book is that kids have to get that they live, they don't live in a pure democracy. They live in a benevolent dictatorship. Well, I'm and glad you cleared that up because that is another thing that I hear talked about a lot. We as parents, millennial parents, especially, you know, we read books about gentle parenting. We read books about how to give our, treat our children like they're equal human beings to us. And I think a lot of what gets lost in translation is we still have to set the boundaries. Um, I hear from parents all the time talking about how they don't really know how to tell their children, we can't watch TV for another hour. Um, and there's this sort of confusion around what it means to have um, respect for our children while also setting the rules. So I'm glad that you cleared yeah, that up. Yeah, like, that's why I like I like this the, the 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 idea or the metaphor of benevolent dictatorship. Right? It's like this is a loving environment. This is benevolent, but at the end of the day, I am going to I'm going to call the shots. And I just believe as parents, that is our it's it's our right and it's our responsibility. You know, I think like when it comes to tech, for example, and. I realize I didn't initially answer your first question about why this book. I, I just been talking about tech and it's because, as you mentioned, it's such an important issue that that was it's such a, a relevant issue today. That's why I started the series. But but the, the point here is that tech, is, you know, for kids, for most kids, from my experience, if we don't set limits for them, most of them are not going to do it for themselves. And I say that tech is kind of like sugar in that regard. Once they get a taste, it's what they're going to want. Once they get Captain Crunch or Skittles, you know, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to get them to just choose broccoli. So you have to somehow find a way to mandate broccoli before you're going to get your Skittles. Just is, like us adults, right? Like we get a hold of technology and it's hard for us to get off of our phones. Yeah, yeah. So like, this is just a fundamental parenting role that we have to play. And I get that for some parents that's harder and maybe some of it's generational about wanting to, as you said, see them as our equals and be gentle and cultivate the sense of independence. And, and there's 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 room for that. And, and I think it's an important part of the conversation. But from my experience, there is just at a certain point in time, we as the parents have the responsibility to say no to our kids. 
And as you, you know, one of the tools I talk in the book is just at some point, like they're going to keep nagging you for more and more screen time, 15 more minutes, an hour. My friends get it. Why don't I? You're the meanest. You're the worst parent. How can you? I'm the only one who doesn't get to be on Snapchat at, at nine o'clock at night. What, whatever, whatever the, the, the allegations are, at some point we have to just say right. no. The, the first half of the book, as you know, it's really guiding parents through a framework of how to think about the role of tech in your home. It's, it's, it's ultimately to create a family tech agreement, which is just a simple way of, of writing down what the rules and the expectations are, explaining what the consequences for violating those are, and then communicating it to your kids so that everything is just clear and upfront so that you, so you can avoid some, you're still going to have battles. There's, there's, I don't think there's any way around that, but you can at least, you, you can soften it by being really clear up front so that you don't have to have World War III in, in, in the hallway, you know, at 9, 9.30 at night when you just want to go to bed because they, they can't have, you know, another 20 minutes of screen time. So clarifying the rules up front is really key to having respect for the boundaries that you that you set. And I think that's really great to hear as a parent because we keep so much to ourselves. You know, we tend to assume that maybe our kids won't understand or even if we present the information to them, they won't really care. But I have found it to be true as a parent, even with a three and a half year old being my oldest, that if I explain what the expectations are up front, things go so much better. If when we're walking into the classroom, I explain, I'm going to give you one hug and a big kiss, and then I'm going to leave and I'm going to wave by from the window, there's a lot less devastation that I'm not lingering and hugging her for 30 minutes before she goes inside. So um, I think that's really a great um, suggestion that you um, that you make. So as a mother of two, with my oldest being only just below four years old. Um, I see a lot of kids my daughter's age with total proficiency in iPad use. So we don't have iPads, which is not for any particular reason. Um, We just don't need them for work. And it's not something I've ever felt like I needed to purchase. Like I have a laptop, I have a smartphone. So in, you know, I'm not buying one specifically for my daughter. We just don't have one around here. So I, as I mentioned, learn how to use a desktop computer starting in the first grade, feel like I'm just fine. Um, But of course, you know, our kids are growing up in a totally different age than we were. And um, I'm asking the question that so many parents have asked me, is there any actual importance to introducing a screen to our child at a young age? Are we serving them by providing them with technology? And um, if, if, if so, at what age is that appropriate? Yeah. So... I think there's two ways to answer this question. One is I, I don't really buy the the notion that they're gonna they're gonna be harmed somehow from not having access to tech until say they're eight or nine or ten years old or, or whatever it is or, or having very minimal. I, I just don't buy the harm thing. Sure, they'll be a little behind in that area, but some kids are better swimmers than other kids, and, and the other ones pick it up later. Some kids learn to ride a bike at a certain earlier than other kids do. I just think kids just have different proficiencies and some are late bloomers in some areas and, and catch up. So I just don't buy that whole idea. From my experience, kids pick this stuff up pretty quick. Awesome. You know, if, you, Great. If, if hypothetically you didn't expose, you know, your daughters to it till they're eight, within about two weeks, they'll probably know their way around your smartphone better than you do anyhow. That's so true. I found that, you know, we like, especially this is like another sort of metaphor with young kids is like, I was just obsessed with our now three-year-old when she was one learning how to use a spoon um, to eat her yogurt. And like, she just wasn't into it and didn't want to do it. And we would work on it every day. And it just drove me insane because she just didn't want to use it. And with my um, youngest daughter, she's 15 months old now. I never even gave her a spoon because I was like, we're just going to deal with this when you're old enough to understand like what a spoon even is. So I handed her a spoon, no joke, maybe for the first time 
a couple weeks ago. Um, she's almost a year and a half old and she just grabbed it and knew exactly how to use it. And it's right. like, I saved myself all of this trouble. Um, so I kind of imagine it to be the same with screens. And I think that that response is really yeah. reassuring. Yeah. So I, that, that's the one piece. The second piece is I, I don't, you know, again, my major premise in the book is that tech is not the problem. The problem is moderation. Mm. Right. So right. just because your kid doesn't have their own tablet to to play around on doesn't mean they can't start to use your computer in some ways. Sometimes my son likes me to pull up a Word document and make all big cap letters and he can just hammer away and type out his name. And there's a whole bunch of ways for them to be exposed to technology and certain online books and certain appropriate learning tools. Khan Academy is a really simple, great one for kids of all ages that I think you could do on any device. Mm-hmm. So I, I just I think that I get I, I think it's not inappropriate to expose them to those things, but I don't think parents should worry if for whatever reason they're holding out. I, I, I still tend to think that, like, for example, we, we're very into being outdoors, whether it's going for bike rides or going to parks or going hiking in, in forest preserve or something like that. I, I think exposing kids to that kind of stuff to skipping rocks in a stream and looking for snails and learning different trees or flowers or working in the garden, that kind of more kinesthetic stuff, I actually think serves them longer, better longer term in terms of brain development and sensory awareness than technology anyhow. So I think the longer we can keep them in the sort of the imaginative world of play away from tech and being physical and being active and being in nature and breathing in fresh air. My personal bias is that at the end of the day is going to serve them a lot better anyway than tech and they'll catch up on tech when they need to. And I think so many of us who've been quarantined inside with our children have really learned that in the last few months that really our kids benefit so much from all that outdoor time and just being in the driveway, playing with chalk. And I know I've been able to see such a difference in my kids um, and hopefully We'll take that with us. So you give incredible advice um, around which blocks of time should be used for screen time during the day. You talk about how a lot of parents end up getting frustrated when the screen time window is right after the homework window because their kids are rushing through their homework just to get to the coveted screen time hour. So what are some of the alternative blocks of time for screen time that you discuss in your book? So there's a couple... There's a couple options that I've seen work best for parents. And again, I think you got to think through what's going to work for your family when you get home from from work and when your kids are off school and after school activities. I mean, you have to be creative with it and obviously customize it to your family situation. But if if you're going to have, if you're going to say, okay, you're going to get screen time for an hour a day or two hours a day or whatever, wherever you land. And I talk about the different ways to think about that, think through that in the book. But let's just say you land on an hour, just say an hour for just a simple sake of example. It's just an hour a day where you can be on there gaming or watching Netflix or or YouTube or whatever whatever it is that you're going to allow your kids to do, whatever's within the parameters. What tends to work best is when you get home from school and and say it's four o'clock or 4.30 or five or whatever, and there's that unwind time where they're having a snack and they're just kind of unwinding from the day that, that, that that first hour that they're home is a really good time to do it before you're going to get to dinner, before it's going to be homework time, so that it's just sort of out of the way. So that then you don't have to worry about when you get to homework that they're just rushing through to get to it. The other option that I think I've seen work really well is you say, hey, look, you come home and, and you're going to do your homework, then we're going to have dinner and you take a shower, a bath or whatever the rituals are in your family. 
And then as we're winding down the day, say from eight o'clock to nine o'clock is when you get your screen time. That way, when they come home from school and they're, and it's maybe if the, if the, your ritual is you come home and you do homework, you have a snack and do homework or something. There is, there's no tension around this idea that they're, that they're really, they're, they're soft peddling their homework or they're just rushing through it to just get to screen time. They want to do it so they can get to their Xbox time because they can't get it till eight o'clock anyway. So it just removes the tension by having those discrete times when it's going to happen at this time. It's predictable. You know, it's coming. Then there's no incentive, as you said before, to just rush through, rush through dinner to get to the screen time or to rush through homework to get to the screen time. You just know when it's coming and it's at a predictable time and it just takes a lot of that tension out of the air. One of the things that I've seen a lot of parents do, and, and, and I think if you can pull this off with your kids and it works in your family, then it's probably a great thing. It doesn't necessarily work for every family, but to have no screen time on school days, basically. So during the school week, if it's a school day, there's no screen time. It's homework time. It's family time. It's book time. It's, you know, maybe you watch one TV show together as a family, something is a treat, but it's not kids retreating to their own devices for an hour or an hour and a half or whatever it is. A lot of parents are able to do that. It works in their family. And I think if you can pull it off, it's also a really, a really good approach. And it, it just takes that tension out. You don't have to have those conversations every day, about 15 more minutes or about when am I going to get it? So I just think putting it as a part of a routine, however you do it, is a discrete block of time tends to work best because what you want to do is just take out all that additional tension and constant negotiation that tends to come with devices. Well, I love the idea of also putting it earlier. Like when they get home from school, they kind of decompress like we do, maybe get on their phones for 15 minutes or 30 minutes and have their screen time then, and then they're winding down. So it's not something that you do before bed um, as a pre-bedtime ritual, because you talk a lot about the importance of having our children turn in their phones before they go to bed at night, not sleeping in their room with our phones, just like adults, you know, should be doing. I recently stopped sleeping with my phone next to my head mm-hmm. on my nightstand. And it's just like, my life has just changed. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So um, devil's advocate though, because I remember growing up and, um, you know, getting, we had AOL, we had AIM, we were chatting on instant messenger on our big desktop computers back then. Mm-hmm. I had a purple Mac computer. And I just remember like the social part of the day continued. Sure. When I got home from school. So I hear a lot of and that parents is only intensified that, now with, with phones and social media. It's, it's you know, right. And what about the kid degree. who's saying, you know, I'm going to miss out. I'm going to miss, I'm not, I'm going to be excluded. I mean, I kind of look at it. I remember the kids who were quote being excluded were actually, um, they were kind of more, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what word to use, but like almost more popular in a sense, because it, they were just like busy with their families. They weren't trying to like, you know, <clears throat> like doing like sitting in front of their computer socializing after school all day. So I try to look at it that way with my own kids when they get to that age because I sort of fall into the camp of limiting it as much as I can. But what do you say to the parent who's like I'm worried about my kid not being included and not being able to hang out with their friends? Yeah, then I think you create I think that's legitimate. I think create create the opportunity again within reason. It doesn't mean that they get their own phone and there's no rules around the phone. But maybe it's an it's an hour block when they can be on Snapchat or you know wherever wherever they're wherever they're gathering, right? Um, I th- yeah, create create that time and space. I mean, that is a reality. That is a, that is a hard reality of our time, mm-hmm. and especially as they get older in their teens and they're going to have their own phone. A massive amount of their social life is going to be on that device. It's like this: the phone becomes the, it's the new playground. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and even more so, I mean, it was starting when I was growing up, but now it's right. just like, it's where people like became boyfriend and girlfriend. Like it was like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so now oh. it's like the same, it's like the same thing. So I, um, I love that you encourage parents in your book not to make themselves crazy if their kid is getting distracted by a device in lieu of schoolwork, which is sort of like counterintuitive to what we've been discussing. So elaborate why this is so important for our relationships with our children. Yeah. So l- let me just be clear about one thing is that, I, I, again, I I do think that kids need, parents need to have limits around screen time. Mm-hmm. And one thing that has become tricky, and I talk about this in the book in, in the modern age, is now most schools, certainly when you get to upper elementary and, and middle and high school for sure, so much of it's online. Right. That's where mm. kids are getting their homework. They're even getting their textbooks. They're taking quizzes and tests. And there's a lot of great that comes with that. There's a lot of really good things about their ability to interact with their teachers and get feedback. And, and there's just there's a lot of good that comes with it. But there's also a lot of challenges that come with it, particularly for parents, because kids can easily say, well, I, I need to be online right now to get my homework. Right. Or to get, mm-hmm. get access to my work. And then you walk in the room and they're on YouTube watching more PewDiePie or, or whatever it is. Right, right. And so it's this tricky gray area. So, you know, I think there's a couple things. One is, and I talk about the tools in the books. So I don't want to go into them exhaustively here, but, you know, you can, if it's a real issue, well, first off, there's different filters you can put on. So you like when it is, say after seven o'clock when they should be doing their homework, you can, you can kill access to certain websites through, you can do it through your internet provider. You can do it through Wi-Fi devices. You can do it through your phone, through iPhones. There's a number of ways. And I talk about the different ways to navigate that. So that's one thing is you can just set some limits around it. If that doesn't work, you can, you can have them doing their homework in a public part of the house so that you don't have to wonder what's going on behind their closed door. You can have them doing it so you can be looking over their shoulder. Um, even all the way up to the point where you can work with a school to actually get hard copies of things if they if they literally can't manage it themselves. M- my point in the book where, it, where the question is, is that having worked with pa- parents and families for, for so long, what, what, from my experience, the number one issue where parents get into conflict with their kids is around school. Mm. Absolutely. And I think it's I, I, I in, mo- in most cases, I think it's the wrong battle to fight. doesn't mean we shouldn't have some limits around things. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be encouraging our kids to be good students. We should. But particularly as they get older, kids need to take responsibility for their own education. And it's not worth killing our relationship with with our kids over about their grades. Um, well, I mean, I, I even remember that. Like, I don't have any positive memories of my parents coming down on me about my grades growing up that I felt like aided me or helped me in any way. Like, if I was ever in any kind of trouble around grades or if, like, my homework was kind of becoming problematic and I was getting, like, nagged about it, it's not something I look back on and I think, wow, that really taught me a lot about work yeah, ethic. Like, yeah, that helped. What it's it not did a positive it memory at all. Well, what it does is it ends up pushing it, – it, it, it makes your kids push you away more and it makes them right. more frustrated with you at exactly the time when they need a strong connection with you. Like Especially right. as they get older, what, what they need is they need you in their corner. I have this metaphor that I use when I'm out talking and it's this idea that just like the biggest corporations and organizations in the world have a board of directors that guides their decision-making – 
every kid has their own board of directors. And it's like a virtual round table of the people who they're listening to and paying attention to as they're figuring out what it means to be an adult in the world. Mm. And so it consists of their friends for sure. It consists of celebrities they're following on social media. It consists of sports figures they idolize, musicians whose music they love. My core premise is that as a parent, your number one priority needs to be is to be on their board of directors. You wow. don't have to be the chairman of the board, but you need to have a seat at the table. And the, and, the, and the way you get and stay on their board of directors is by having a relationship with them that is strong. Now, they're not going to come to you and tell, talk to you about everything. We're talking about kids after all. But when the big things hit, and they're always going to hit, and whether that's a friend of theirs is in real trouble or issues around drugs and alcohol or somebody doing something inappropriate on social media or them making a mistake and sending something inappropriate on social media or them getting into any kind of dark spot, you want to be one of the people that they're going to come talk to and confide in when, when the big things hit. If you're not on their board of directors, you're not going to be that person who they're coming and talking to. So, and of course, when you think about it, the person who would be on their board of directors would be the supportive person that they feel like they can talk to. That they, yeah, that's their not, friends. And, and their friends right, should be on their right. board of directors, but not at the exclusion mm -hmm. of you. You need to be right. on their board of directors. You need to be one of the people they're seeking counsel from when they screw up, when they when they have big questions, when 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 they get in over their head in, in, in any of these areas, pornography, drugs and alcohol, is conflict with friends, social media whatever it is you need to they need you need to have a relationship that is strong and intact so coming back to the whole school thing from my experience having worked with hundreds of families it is school is often the single most common issue the fighting about school is what will get parents kicked off their kids board of directors more than anything mm. so my whole premise is of course encourage them to be a good student work with them set limits around technology i i don't think for example that just let's say a kid who doesn't want to do their homework and doesn't want to study, therefore they should just get free reign on technology. I don't right. think so at all. I think there right. still need Absolutely to be not. limits, but you set limits. They get an hour a day or two hours a day or whatever you land on. And if, and, and if in spite of your best efforts, they're just not living to their potential in school. And let's also be clear. A lot of times what this means is they're getting B's and not A's. Right. Yeah. I mean, I like, got a B minus in biology and, 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 and I know we could get an A. And so you're fighting about it. That's just not and the I also, to be having with your adolescent kid. It's just not the thing to focus on. And I think about how we treat ourselves too. Like most of us, if we're treating our child that way, it's just a reflection of how we treat ourselves. I mean, if we really get a B minus on an assignment in life, right. And we're that hard on ourselves, we're going to be that hard on our kids. So it really provides an opportunity to say, you know, how, how would how would I feel and how did I feel probably um, being criticized for such a small even it's not even an infraction it's great right. I mean to be minus in my life today I'm like cool done. I mean not everything needs to be perfect and uh, we have we're also teaching our kids something by showing them acceptance around that I believe yeah well yeah, th yeah th there's definitely that and if you look at the the biggest predictors of career success it's not about your grades. It's not about what college you went to. It's if you look at the, the research shows that the biggest predictors of career success, they're all character based traits. It's all about like things like emotional intelligence, resilience, good social skills, empathy. 
It's those character-based traits that are actually going to be bigger predictors of them being happy, well-adjusted adults in the world. So if they're getting C's and B's and you think they can get A's, it doesn't mean they're going to be living in a van down by the river someday. It's just not where it's going to wind up. And so we just have to, again, stay on their board of directors, stay connected, stay close, trust, trust that when they're ready to really apply themselves, when they see a goal that they really want, that they're going to go after it. I've seen so many kids that are struggling and struggling through high school and their parents are fighting with them about it. And they're just, there's so much tension. And then that fighting around school metastasizes into other areas. And there's just, the, the, the house is filled with tension. And then when the kid's 18, 19, and they, and they get out of the house and they get, they get a little breathing room and they, and they start to meet some other people and they have a set, they, they start to see some role models doing things in the world that really inspire them and motivate them, they apply themselves fully. So a lot of it is just getting out of the way, not creating a lot of tension with them about unnecessary stuff and, and being on their board of directors and helping them get through this, this rocky time that is adolescence. And coming back to the whole tech thing, I do, I, I do believe that tech is one of the battles we have to fight. Like I, I really do believe that we do need to set limits with them around tech. Um, because just again, too many of them won't do it for themselves. But when you start to weigh out all the other all the other battles you can be fighting with them, that's where the whole school thing falls in. Because I just don't think parents should just let World War Three erupt in their home around their kids' grades. It's just it's it's a net it's a net loss from my experience just about every time. Well, what you just described, I want to say for the record, in case anyone doesn't necessarily believe it, is exactly my life experience. My grades were so subpar in high school. Um, I felt like just constantly like I'm at the the pressure and the being picked on. It was not, I mean, I, I didn't apply myself nearly as much as I did. As soon as I left the nest, I got to college. I was magna cum laude. Like I had never had grades like that in my life. Right. It was like, as soon as I got the space and I had the charisma and I was, um, I, I was highly motivated, but none of it was manifesting until so I got out of the you, house. Uh, what, what changed in you that made you start applying yourself in a different way? Oh, I, um, I, I cared so much about, um, what I was going to school for and about being successful at it. And, um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't being, I was able to kind of make my own rules and make my own board of directors, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was just so passionate. I mean, the, my teachers were so encouraging and just the voices that I was starting to hear, um, about who I was and how much I had to offer had completely changed. You know, I wasn't going home to like homework battles anymore. Right. Um, yeah, it was an it. encouraging environment and it was just totally different. And I don't mean, you know, I think my parents, honestly, like they did the best they could. They were raised the same way they raised me. We all like, we do the best that we can. But, um, the second I got out of just being told like I was going to get in trouble or that like something was wrong all the time. Like, I mean, I'm not even kidding you. I had like almost a perfect GPA after regularly getting called. I mean, in middle school, I was getting these things called interim reports, which are, mm -hmm. you don't want them. Like, like they're between your, between report cards, my teachers were sending mini report cards to my parents saying, your kid is not turning in her homework. Yeah. And that was kind of the way that I was just dealing with what was going on in my house. And I tell people that now and they're like, there's no way you were turning in your homework. Um, I wasn't, I really yeah. wasn't. It was that, I mean, you can t seriously take a kid who is as motivated. I mean, I have been motivated and ambitious my entire life Yeah, and they can still rebel in that type of way academically. And I think you're right. I mean, it does, it creates so much strain. And um, I had a therapist tell me once, you know, my, my two-year-old at the time was coming home from school telling me that her teachers were really mean to her and that they were hitting her and like all these things that I knew weren't really going on. And um, 
I kept responding to her and telling her, you know, I know that that's not happening, Selma. Like, why are you telling me that that's happening? And the therapist said, why don't you try like listening to her? Don't tell her that what she's telling you isn't true because she's just trying to figure out like, are you there for her? Are you going to make space for whatever her truth happens to be that day? And then when she's older and she has her first boyfriend, you know, if you can show her now that you're here for her, um, she'll tell you about that. And that was just like the, one of the most beautiful pieces of advice I ever got. I, yeah. the next day my daughter came home and I said, you know, really, like, what were they saying to you? And almost after like five minutes of telling me all these horror stories, she kind of just totally dropped it and never told me about it again. And started <laughs> telling me about what was going on. I was like, why is she coming home? I mean, I was almost like, what is going on here? Why is my kid making up these stories? But she really just wanted to know, like, are you there? Like, do yeah, you care? Do you care what's going you. on for me? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Fascinating. So, yeah. It's so it's funny. The story just kind of burned itself out after five minutes. It's just sort of done with it. Oh, it was done. And it had been months of me That's just like so frustrated. Like, Ugh. why are you telling me that your teachers are abusing you? Like, this is so crazy. I mean, I was just like, and I know what's going on at her school. Like, I am very, I mean, there wasn't like any merit to anything yeah. that I mean, I was even sharing with her teachers, like, and they were just hysterically laughing, like, like some kids do that. And so I was kind of trying to find a way to, um, and, and I noticed like, that's something that she does. She wants to see if I'm listening. So, um, just total game changer. Um, you talk about cyberbullying and how to show up for our children if they're experiencing cyberbullying, which is as a parent, like my worst fear in the entire world, yeah, which I, I I'm sure a lot of people relate. Um, but you also talk about something which is discussed much less often, um, which most of us don't even think about, which is discovering that our child is doing the bullying. Um, so you talk about how the bully often needs an empathetic response as well. Um, so tell us more about why that is the case. Well, there's a couple reasons. One is just if you look at the data, the, the long – for kids that routinely engage in bullying over a sustained period of time, the risk factors are very, very high for alcoholism, substance abuse, domestic violence issues, school failure, you know, really struggling in career and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, doesn't mean that every kid who bullies, that's going to happen to, but for kids that have deep-seated bullying issues, there is data out there that shows that the long-term consequences for them can be pretty intense. So there's that. But the other piece is that every every kid probably at some point you know, you can get you can get into these technical definitions of bullying, and, and maybe one better way to say it is being mean, right? Because I think every kid at some point is mean to other kids. I, I know I certainly was, and, and maybe some things I did where it could be construed as bullying. Bullying, if you get into the definitions, it's about a certain kind of consistency over time, targeting a certain person. But that all said, in terms of kids being mean online, typically kids are, are doing that for one of two core reasons. One is that they're either getting some kind of positive feedback from others, like they're making their friends laugh. So they're getting some kind of props from, from their friends and, and it makes them at least temporarily feel good about themselves. The second reason is that they're really hurting inside and, and they, they need help. They're, they're, something's going on internally and their self-esteem is low Maybe they're dealing with an acute painful situation at home, like a divorce or something like that. But for whatever reason, the, the core part of it is that they're hurting 
and they're taking it out on others again as a way to sort of temporarily alleviate the 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 pain that they're feeling. So either way, it just needs to be addressed. If we become aware of it, we we have to help them. You know, if it's just if it's if it's the first thing where they're just being mean because they're getting they're they're getting some kind of little adrenaline rush by picking on a kid or they're getting social reinforcement. They just need to learn that that's just not an appropriate thing. That 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 this is just not the way to treat people in the world. And and and, and again, we, this is all something we all have to learn about being nice and not taking things from others and not hitting. I mean, this is you know the kind of stuff that kids with our kids are having to learn. You know about sharing and just basic tenets of kindness. So as they get older, that that still becomes one of the conversation parts around really developing empathy. Look at how you're making this other person feel. How would you feel if, if you were in their shoes? And really using it as an opportunity for them to realize that this is not this is not a good way to go through the world making jokes and getting getting your social props at other people's expense. But the second thing yeah. is if there is a deeper issue going on, how do we help them with that so that they don't need to act out and and lash out at other people that they that we can help them deal with it so that they don't so that, that they can get their needs met in a healthy and positive way that is not basically being mean to others or systemically bullying others because because their mental health and their well-being is really what's at stake. Well, we're teaching them also as parents that when they are doing something that's out of alignment um, in any way, whether it's drinking too much or doing drugs or treating people unkindly to self-monitor. Like, what is this telling me about myself? I know as an adult, I ask myself that question when I feel like I'm going off my my track, like what's going on with me? Because all these behaviors, they're just our pain being expressed. Um, in a, and, and as parents, I think if we can get above the sort of fear and humiliation and whatever we have going on when we find out that our parents are engaging, our kids are engaging in this behavior, we can really be effective as advocates for them and helping them process whatever's going on. Yeah, um, for some of it is just the maturing process. You know, there's a lot yeah. of things I said and did when I was a, a teen that I look back on and just, you know, shake my head, you know, things I'm yeah. you know, far from <laughs> proud of. And, you know, of course, I wish I hadn't, but, 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 but now I can look back life, and say, hey, know, that's, yeah. that's not how I want to show up in the world. And it's not the kind of example I want to set for my own child. And it's just not who I want to be. But th that's just that's a maturation process. But I think that when we catch them, if these if these issues arise around bullying or being mean, however you want to categorize it, th this is the opportunity for those conversations. And sometimes you're planting seeds. It may not it may not the, the seeds may not sprout right away. But I do think it's important that we are planting those seeds so that, that, that they can sprout at the right time and they can realize that this is this is really not the way to, to walk through the world about being unkind to people. And especially so today, this is what's, what's I mean, obviously, this is a massively needed thing in our world today. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I look at my I look at what I'm reading on my Facebook, like the Facebook comments on different posts I'm following. And I'm like. I wouldn't let my kid read this. Like this yeah. is not, and I hope, like I, I hope given the anti-bullying culture that our kids are being raised in, that they will grow up and be like, what were our parents doing? I mean, what, right. what, I mean, just know how to do it better because it's not, it's a total myth that bullying just ends when you become an adult. Like if you yeah. don't learn any differently, um, that's not just like a given. I mean, adults are behaving like children all the time. Sure, sure. Um, it becomes a little more sophisticated or the language around it. But, but yeah, right. for sure. It's still kind of like what's going on. Um, yeah. so it's having, I have two girls and my husband and I like to talk hypothetically about this boy we might have one day. And, uh, we were talking about this boy the other, 
the other night and and I said, I don't even know how this ended up coming up, but I said like, gosh, like, you know, I, I wouldn't even know what to do if I found out that we had a, like, that our boy was like a teenager looking at pornography. And he was like, well, you better get ready because that's what's going to happen if we end up having like a 12 or 13 or 14 year old boy. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, not all boys end up looking at pornography. And he was like, where do you live? Like, yes, they do. Like, that's what teenage boys do. And so I ended up, I was just like, you know, sitting there like dumbfounded, like, how am I ever going to handle this in this hypothetical situation that I'm not even in? And then I ended up reading your chapter um, on what to do if you discover that your children is looking at pornography. And I love what you say. I love your guidance. You really encourage parents to stay calm um, and you map out how normal this curiosity is. So this was really important for me to read. Um, So let's talk about how we can handle that normal curiosity and be there for our kids in a way that makes them feel like they're not being judged by us and makes them feel safe talking to us about it. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you kind of nailed it. This stay calm is really the, the number one thing is don't freak out. You know, right. realize that. And there's a lot of negative we could talk about with pornography. And there's, there's a whole, there's, you know, this, you know, do you, you know, people have their own feelings about it. Some, you know, probably have more negative feelings about it than others, but there's, there's a lot to critique about the idea, but we have to realize that the, the drive to look at it, that, that impulse, that curiosity is so completely normal. You know, I mean, before, before there were videos, there were, there were pictures of nudity the kids wanted to look at before that there were drawings before that there were sculptures and cave paintings. I mean, this is, this This is going on forever. Right. It's just to now, I mean, today it's like, oh my God, like, I mean, the way that the way that, I mean, the graphic nature of what pornography really is today. I mean, even versus what it was like 10 years ago. For sure. For sure. I like when I was a kid, I remember stumbling like, oh my on my, my grandfather's Playboy magazines in the basement and it was, you know, oh my God, and what is this? <laughs> you know, and now That's it's- like it's, a magazine today. Like you can find that like on Instagram. I well, feel exactly. Like. Yeah, like totally. Totally. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just available 24 seven on their phones now. So- I think, so I think the first thing is, is don't freak out. And then, and then the, the, the second part of it, and this is in some ways the hard part, is to have a conversation. Right. And to listen. You know, it doesn't mean you are giving approval. I think we should say, hey, listen, like I, I'm not – I don't like this. And you can make your case for why you prefer they're not looking at pornography. But what you also have to realize as a parent is that in spite of your best efforts, you can have every parent control app known to man. If your kid wants to look at porn, they're going to find a way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They're going to have a friend whose parents are are behind the eight ball on it, or they're going to get their hands on some magazines or a thumb drive with BitTorrents on it. I mean, if they really want it, they're going to find a way. So you have to realize that in spite of all your most noble and valiant efforts to keep it away, if they're determined, you're not going to be able to. So then what does that leave you with? You either fight with them about it, which is fair, it was pretty much futile, or you, right. start, you talk to them about it. You have some conversations, you express your, your discomfort with it, but you basically say, hey, look, like, let's just talk about it. You know, I, here's how I feel about it, but how do you feel about it? You know, what's your understanding of it? In the book, I also link to this, there's this resource page that I created on my website that, that parents can go get to. And, and in that, I've got some videos. There. Like, I think one good thing you can also do is actually use technology is a tool right now because there's lots of videos out there that talk about the harmful nature of pornography, that talk about the sex trafficking that actually goes on behind the camera. 
in pornography. So I actually think that it's important to educate boys, teen boys and girls for that matter, but just educate them about it. Doesn't mean that they're not going to watch it, but you can at least help them be more informed consumers so that they can make more mature decisions and then start to realize, wow, maybe I don't want to support this industry. Hey, maybe this is actually really harmful to the women that are in these videos. I didn't realize that. I wasn't thinking about them. I was thinking about myself. But if you can educate them about the industry, about what happens to, to the girls that are coming out of that of that industry, they, then they can start to make be, be on track at least to make some more mature decisions about it. But you can't get there if you can't have a conversation th with them about it. If you're just lecturing and freaking out and threatening to punish them, you're never going to get to that more meaningful conversation that is what's going to help them actually make more mature adult decisions about it down the road. Well, I think it's the same thing too about the board of directors that you were talking about earlier. Like the way that we approach this, it's it's telling our kids something about how how can they relate to us, how can they rely on us, can they trust us. Um, so it's like you know the way that we treat them about it. If we blow up at them and like you know just take everything away, right. Um, you're right. They will find a way to access it. I remember Facebook and MySpace coming out when I was in high school, and like the teachers trying to take it off of make make it inaccessible. And we all found ways to get on it. So um, they will find ways um, and just informing them about it. And I think a lot of when we have that information, it just affects how we relate to something. So um, my last question, um, toward the end of your book, you discuss children who have violent responses to having their technology threatened or taken away. Um, what are your recommendations for parents who are dealing with these types of reactions? Yeah, it's it's unfortunately it's more common than a lot of folks would think. I've talked to so many parents over the last few years that are really dealing with that that and this becomes this is tricky. So, you know, in the book I talk about like with a lot of the rules and and strategies, obviously, if you build them in as your kids are first getting exposed to devices, the road you travel is going to be a lot easier. You know, for me with a son who's a 6-year-old and you having younger kids, right now we're thinking about this stuff at the right time so that when they get their first devices, eventually when they're, when they're 22. Right. Um, right. But if your kid's already like a teenager and they're completely addicted, yeah. I mean, I've heard stories about like a girl had to go home from summer camp because she was actively withdrawing from not having a smartphone and couldn't right. be without it. Right. So, so what's happened is if, if you've got a 15 year old who just, you, you, with the best of intentions, you gave him his first phone when he was 10 and now, and you didn't have any particular rules around it, and now it's 15, and you're trying to you're trying to walk it back. It can be really tricky. And what what sometimes will happen with these kids is they'll they're so accustomed to it. They're so it's so ingrained in their world, whether it's their Xbox or their smartphone or whatever it is, that when parents then try to put limits on it, they freak out. You know, and they kick a hole in the wall or they throw a lamp or in some cases literally push their parents or, or threaten and try to intimidate them. By 15, a lot of boys are older than, than their – or bigger than their mothers. So Yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah, so, so you know, it can be a real problem. And then what – so and here's the problem. If, 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 you're, if a parent is in that situation where their kid is basically using threat and intimidation to get their way – if you as, as the parents back down, you basically have just give, given, sent your kid the message that he's running the house. Right. Through threatening right. You've basically yeah. lost control of your home because now anytime yeah. you try to set a rule or a limit or set a boundary with your kid he doesn't like, he's calling the shots. 
because you've let him yeah, and he knows it. basically telegraph that he's that he's that he's in charge. And kids don't want to be calling the shots. Like that's not they don't want that kind of control, even though they even though maybe we think that that's like we think we're being yeah. loving by giving them all this um, autonomy. That's not that they don't like that at all when they're younger, they don't, as they get to 15, then maybe some of them do, but regardless, it's not good for them to call the shots. It's not good because then they're learning that this is actually a way to get what you want in the world. And that's not going to serve them well in creating a mature adult relationships. It's not going to serve them well in the workplace. It's not going to serve them well in college and just navigating that. So it's, it's, they have to learn that they are not the alpha of the family and calling the shots. So unfortunately, if, if parents have lost that physical control of their home in that way, then they have to involve the police. And right. I, I walk okay. people through, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. I remember you talk about that in your book and, and it's like, this might be really like nothing you've ever even considered, but yeah. And, and listen, I get it. No parent in the world wants to call the police on their child. But what I've also, I mean, and I give, I, I talk specifically through what steps to take. I mean, typically what I explain to, to parents is to actually call your local police department. Most police departments have a juvenile division and they have officers dedicated specifically to issues related to, to kids, um, adolescents and teenagers. And they're used to dealing with this kind of stuff. So it's, you have to treat it as a resource, right? You're not just like calling, the, you're not calling the police to cart your kid off to jail. You're calling the police because that is the mechanism we have in society when when people break rules and when people are out of control. And if your kid's out of control, someone has to come in and send the message in a safe and controlled and responsible way, obviously, that you can't kick a hole in the wall, that you can't throw a lamp, that you can't push your mom because you want more Xbox time. Someone has to send that message. So if you can't do it, who are you going to call? You got to work with the police. So again, it, you can use them as a resource and a tool strategically. You may end up having to actually call the police in a crisis, but there's a lot of things you can do in advance by building relationships with the juvenile officers in your community so that when you do get to that point, it's strategic. And again, I walk, I walk them through the, um, I, I walk parents through the specific steps to take in what to say in the book. A lot of the thing, one of the aspects of the book that I created because I just thought parents would really need it is, is like these mini scripts, basically. Like, here's what you say in this situation, whether it's porn or bullying or kids being out of control, here's specifically what to say. So that sort of step-by-step -step guidance is there in the book if parents are facing that kind of situation. But you have to involve the police. You, you have to send the message one way or another that you cannot rule our home through threat and intimidation. I think that that's such an applicable... Um, an applicable strategy, just really in any situation, not calling the police in any situation, but just making sure to establish like who the boss is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, at, for, from as early on as possible. Yeah. Um, and I, I really appreciate, I really appreciate it. I'm so grateful that you personally, that you wrote the book that you wrote because I've already gotten so much out of it and can't wait to use it um, as the years go by with my own kids. And I'm grateful to have you on today, Joshua. Thank you for being my guest. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Nice chatting with you. And if anyone wants to visit you online and learn more, um, are you Joshua? Tell me your URL. Yeah, www.joshuajoshuawayne.com. And you can get all my information and resources and uh, free tools and strategies and a whole bunch of free stuff that's available there and then more information to the other stuff that I've got out there. Fantastic. Joshua Wayne, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And uh, thank you all for joining me. I look forward to being with you again next time. 
Thank you for joining me for another episode of Look Ma No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and the behind the scenes of my life with my own two daughters. If you like this episode and are enjoying Look Ma No Hands, the best way you can help me spread the word is to leave a review on Apple Podcast. This is the single best way to help me reach a larger audience and share these conversations with everyone who needs to hear them. If you love something you just heard, you can also take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. There might be someone you know who needs to hear what you just heard, and that's another great way to make sure they do. Thank you for joining me every week. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. More next time. Mom, 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 mom.